Hi, this is Tom Pacello, the ROI guy, and welcome to the Evolvers podcast. My guest today is Mary Shea, a principal analyst at Forrester Research, where she works with leading brands and sales tech providers worldwide to help them understand changing buyer dynamics, how to enable sellers, and shape go-to-market programs for success. Mary leverages research and her sales leadership experience to not just provide insights, but still a clear view of the future from all of that data. And she is a great speaker who I've had the pleasure of sharing a stage with many times. Mary Shea, welcome. Well, thank you, Tom. It's great to be here. And I'm looking forward to having a really dynamic conversation today. And that intro, that sounded very official, but um, (laughs) I love your podcast voice. Thank you. I love origin stories. Um, So first, I I like to find out how the heck people got into sales and sales enablement. How did you get your start? It's kind of a funny story, and it's probably not dissimilar to how a lot of people get into sales. Uh, Many people haven't started out their career thinking they're going to go into sales, and one thing leads to another, and they end up finding it's an incredible profession on so many levels. So my story is probably not dissimilar to to others in that respect, but um, I actually uh, was teaching at a small college in Boston and finishing my dissertation. I was getting my PhD in musicology and ethnomusicology and probably wasn't making all that much money at the time. And so I ended up taking a summer job with a dear friend of mine. His name's James Bulger, and he is the general manager at one of Herb Chambers dealerships in the Boston area. He invited me to come in and sell cars for the summer. And it was really just kind of a a fun job to help me make a little extra money between classes. And I started doing it and I found found out that I really loved it. I I really enjoyed meeting people. I loved the pace. Um, Soon before I knew it, I was one of the top folks in the dealership along with my friend. And then I ended up selling a bunch of cars to a number of Forrester analysts and Forrester salespeople back in the late 90s. And one thing led to another. I couldn't pass up a tremendous opportunity to work at a company that was really just starting to help large organizations understand what the impact of the internet was going to be back at that time. So I feel really, really fortunate that I had that opportunity and wasn't, a, wasn't afraid to take a chance and take a risk at, at a point in my career where it made sense. Oh, that's just awesome. And I did not realize that you started off selling selling automobiles and selling cars for Herb Chambers. That's that's awesome. Now, you mentioned your degree. I think it's a PhD, if I'm not mistaken, in musicology and ethnomusicology. Tell me about this wow. and, and how this has maybe helped contribute to the skill set you need as a, as a seller and a sales enablement analyst now. Well, I think the link is a little, um, you have to look at it with a squint probably, but (laughs) (laughs) the one thing that that I do find is that there's a lot of PhDs out there in the business world, and I think a couple of things contribute to uh, success in the corporate environment or translate well. I think it's the discipline and the commitment and the hard work that it takes to achieve that kind of um, uh, level of education. It it was not easy, um, probably took me about eight years or so with all the coursework and the exams and writing the dissertation to actually get it. But my first career was as a professional musician. I was a classical oboist and I played in Boston in a number of different orchestras. And I worked 
in Mexico and in Europe and spent about four years in the Guadalajara Symphony, where that was really my first job. And um, it was really wonderful. I got to really live my dream. And, you know, as, as, as I grew up and saw other opportunities come my way, I took them, as, as you saw from the previous comment. But not really sure how much musicology and ethnomusicology has to do with what I have today, but certainly... It's darn uh, interesting, though. <laughs> I, I, it certainly I think makes, makes first, for good conversation. Absolutely. And you were the first musicology, ethnomusicologist that, that I have ever met. Um, I was also a uh, piano player. I was in wedding bands in Long Island when I was 15 years old. So just self-taught, not, uh, not wow. classically yeah. trained like you. But I do think that that background of being in front of people uh, performing, um, you know, knowing how to tell a story through song and how to um, present in front of people in that storyteller kind of performing format, I think certainly has helped. Um, so, so that's at least the connection I make back to it, and I'm sticking to it. Um, I also, it's really interesting that you mentioned Guadalajara, because that is probably one of my most favorite places that I've had the opportunity to visit with, uh, visit to uh, many, many times. Santo Coyote is one of my favorite restaurants, and it is there, and um, it's a great city, so it was amazing that you got to be there, too. Yeah, it was absolutely amazing. And talk about weather. It's um, probably even better than what you experience in Florida when you're there. So Guadalajara is a wonderful, it wonderful is. city. The people, the I artisans. Yeah, the, the art absolutely. there. And uh, I collect uh, Spanish colonial art and many pieces in, uh, in the house are from Guadalajara. Wonderful. So enough, enough chit chat about our, our backgrounds and everything else. Um, we're on the cusp of, new, of a new decade, right? And I know that Forrester has some really important research that you've been pulling together to guide sellers and marketers into this new decade. And it, it's gonna be a decade of tremendous transition that we're already feeling the effects to. So let's dive in. First, buyers in 2020, how are they different? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, we're doing a ton of research that really looks at the future of buying, future of selling, and the future of products. And we're collaborating with uh, both the Forrester analysts, traditional Forrester analysts, along, along with our serious decisions colleagues as well. So super exciting stuff we're working on. You know, I would say the biggest thing about buyers today is that they want the best of all worlds. They want to engage and transact both in online and offline settings. And, um, you know, it's not an either or experience. I think even three or four years ago when I was speaking at one of our recent forums, I was talking a lot about buyers that wanted a frictionless exchange or a high value interaction. It was kind of a bifurcated process. And if you were a transactional high volume type of business or product and service, uh, you had to think about e-commerce. And if you were a complex product or service that used sellers, you were probably thinking of that high value touch and interaction. So now buyers have continued to evolve and grow and they're smart and, and they want the best of both worlds. So they want to transact and engage in both online and offline settings. And, you know, a few weeks ago I had the opportunity to attend the B2B Next event, which took place in Chicago. And Andy Hoare, who leads that event, is a good friend of mine. He invited me to speak and I had some great experience being there. You know, and I talked to Andy, and, and, and he said, you know, where and how B2B buyers make a purchase is pretty much of a seller construct, mm -hmm. and B2B buyers increasingly don't care about it. 
And so today they want the best of both worlds online and offline. But as we move forward in the future, I think buyers are going to expect to engage anywhere, anytime, independent of channel or touch point. And uh, they're going to expect to transact. And this separation between online and offline that we have today is soon going to become a distinction without a difference. Yeah, we're not and, quite there yet, but and, I think that's where we're going. the distinction, too, between sales, marketing, customer success, those lines are going to probably similarly blur as the buyer forces the, that um, seamless and frictionless uh, transaction. Absolutely. I mean, when you think about the silos that have existed between sales and marketing for so many years, I just I don't think it is going to uh, remain so as we move forward. The buyer doesn't care about how you're organized if you're a supplier. They don't care about your silos in marketing and sales and customer success. They increasingly care about experiences and they want a great, fluid and seamless experience. And so it's really going to force organizations to come to terms with these silos that have existed for a long time and they're going to have to go away. So I think it's exciting. I think also the access to so much data that we have will continue to foster better relationships between marketing and sales because you'll have less of that finger pointing and more of let's sit down and see what the data tell us and we'll figure out where we invest and what kind of content works and which doesn't. And so that that will foster a very healthy relationship, I think, as we move forward. And then finally, I think on the customer success side, especially as you think about the as-a-service business model or SaaS, as we think about it in technology, those folks that are in customer success are almost the most important folks in the selling organization. So I think the, the pyramid of the AE way at the top of the, the pyramid and customer success sort of lower down the food chain, you know, that potentially gets tipped upside down and, customer success folks are going to be much more involved in originating and identifying commercial opportunities and, you know, not necessarily taking on an actual quota, but really contributing to commercial results. And so I think it's pretty exciting. I, I completely agree. I think we're at a great time in the cusp of a great decade. Now you mentioned Andy Hoare and I, I was at an event um, several years ago and uh, Andy's on stage and it was a uh, sales enablement event and he walks up on stage and says, I've got some bad news for everyone in this audience. Uh, the B2B sales rep is dead. Uh, that over 1 million B2B sellers, one in five, are going to be out of a job by 2020. And Mary Shea, lo and behold, we're here. And uh, we are here. And we are here. here. <laughs> so, I, I mean, you met with Andy. I, I know that there literally were gasps in the audience. I mean, I was blown away. Yeah. But as we looked at it, you know, he was right in so many ways. And in fact, in, in many ways, might have underestimated the impact yeah. that the buyer is going to have. So, what has Forrester seen? Have the predictions come true? And you know, give us a little insight into it. Was Andy right? <laughs> well, I'm not sure whether being right is always the most important answer. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes sure. at Forrester, what's really important is that you're surfacing up a really important dialogue that needs to happen between relevant constituents. So I love Andy, um, but let's, let's be frank, he's a bit of a provocateur. Yeah. And I call the death of the B2B salesman the you know, most purposefully provocative piece of research that I think we've done at Forrester. And what I loved about the research at the time was that it, it really accelerated this conversation between 
marketing and sales and leadership around, you know, how do we have to go to market? How do we need to think about this differently? Because things are changing so fast and they were changing at that time and even now faster than we'd ever been prepared to um, address. <laughs> so, you know, I, I credit Andy uh, with uh, surfacing up a great conversation. Now, if we want to parse the numbers, you know, I don't have uh, more data. We didn't conduct that study in a longitudinal way so that we can go back and analyze that year over year. I'm going to say uh, perhaps Andy would even underestimated the, the changes. But what we're finding now in the research is that, you know, maybe we over-indexed a little bit for, you know, the digital where it was an either-or situation and sellers were very alarmed with the idea of potentially being disintermediated by commerce. Now what buyers tell us is they very much value their interactions with sellers. They just Absolutely. want different kinds of interactions. They don't want a seller to come in and pitch product or company or solution or tell them what they already know, but they really do interact with them. And we did some really interesting research with technology buyers and um, out of those buyers that purchased online, about 63% um, of those purchasers online actually interact, interacted with a sales rep at some point in the process. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing is, again, it's not either or. We want both. We want everything. And um, we want to interact anywhere, anyhow, any way we can. Um, and we very much value sellers. And so you're probably seeing that in your work that you do, that uh, sellers are more important probably than ever before. They just need to go about how they do their job in a different way. And they need to be supported and enabled with different tools and different training and development and probably even different organizational structures, as we were talking about, and different comps. Absolutely. Yep. And some of them have been organized differently. You know, we now have a separation of growth and hunter teams. Customer success has taken some of those resources in. Um, and then um, there has definitely been a commoditization uh, at organizations that realize they were needed to maybe move to be a little bit more transactional or move some of the customers to be a little bit more transactional. So there was definitely a reaction to it. Um, I liken it to, you mentioned that you were in car sales and, you know, I bet if we did a survey today, there's probably, uh, I would imagine maybe as many car sales reps as there were back in the day when you were selling, but mm -hmm. their job is clearly different. You know, now you can go online and research a ton of information. Now you can um, even buy frictionlessly from places like Carvana. Uh, real estate right. is another area that I view similarities to. It's a rather complex sale. And um, there's more real estate agents today than ever before. But several yeah. years ago, people were claiming that technology would lead to the death of the real estate agent. However, the job that real estate agents do today, dramatically different. You know, before exactly, I was right out of school, right out of engineering school. My first sales experience was as a real estate agent, uh, part-time on the weekends. And we own that MLS. We own the data. You couldn't find any information about a listing. And that exclusivity to that data and that information about what you sold was so important. That now has been completely superseded by technology. So what's more important now is facilitating the buying process, making sure that right. the par partners buying that property uh, are aligned, uh, making sure they understand the whole process, holding the buyer's hand through it, as well as the seller's hand, staging, um, making sure that um, they've got pocket listings that maybe are exclusive. So there's, there's differences now in 
um, yeah. not just being content providers, but in actually adding value and helping to facilitate that process. So with that in mind, as we look at, at B2B sales reps and, and the reshaping of kind of um, what they need to do, what, what do companies need to do to meet the challenge of this changed landscape, the changed buyer, and this new type of sales rep that needs to be enabled? Yeah, so I, I love the analog that you just described on the, on the real estate side and the fact that everything is transparent now, and that's the same in the, pretty much in the business world as well. The seller's not that sole conduit of information into their firm, whether that's pricing or um, any other kind of information that yeah, they would be sharing with the buyer. Exactly. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So I think there's a number of things that companies need to do. You know, number one, I think they need to reimagine the role of the sales rep. And so we worked with, um, for some of the research that I conducted, I, I worked with uh, Sean, uh, Sean Goldie, who's at Aptio, and he's doing some really interesting things. He sat down with HR, his head of sales, and he is actually a sales enabling practitioner. And they really reimagined what um, kind of talent they wanted to go after, what kind of profile they needed for this new world. And you're right, the job of the real estate agent or the sales rep is fundamentally different, whether you're a car sales rep or you're selling a multi-million dollar solution to a business. Mm -hmm. And so I think the first thing is really understanding the type of profile you want to go after, recreate your specs, potentially even start to think about acquiring talent from new pools, whether that could be going to a top tier business school or from the engineering group within your own firm or customer success or what have you. And then I think the next stage is to really think about, you know, we're not going to go out and hire a thousand new salespeople. We're, we've got to, you know, sort of ramp up the folks we have and enable them to engage effectively with today's buyers. Mm -hmm. So how do we think about training and developing them? How do we think about onboarding them? So, do we need solutions like sales readiness solutions to help with that, to enable that to happen more uh, efficiently and to accelerate that process? So what are the kinds of training development and readiness we need to provide to them? And then what are the underlying technologies and tools that sellers need in order to be effective in today's world? And those tools are gonna typically drive efficiencies effectiveness and create better experiences for folks who interact with them. And when you think about back in the day when I was selling or when, when I was a sales leader, Tom, it was all about CRM and we, mm -hmm. you know, constantly be thinking about how do we get adoption? And I used the stick and the carrot and I made everybody use it. We had CRM Friday afternoons because at the end of the day, I needed the data. It wasn't helping the salesperson. Yeah, yeah. But now I think, you know, CRM probably takes a little bit of a backseat to some of these newer platforms that I think are becoming foundational to supporting sellers as they move forward. And those are sales engagement, sales enablement automation, and sales readiness platforms. And we really think those are the core tools that every organization really needs to have in place to ensure that their sellers can engage on par with today's buyers. Without, yeah, so, without the tools, training, and, and talent, you're gonna, the gap between what, what, what buyers want from an experience perspective and what sellers can deliver is gonna widen and widen. Yeah. So it's important for leaders to move forward with tool acquisition, um, reshaping of talent, and so on. 
Absolutely. So you mentioned those three categories, sales engagement, sales enablement, automation, and sales readiness. Can you just provide a kind of a brief definition on, on what each one is? What are the challenges that they're helping to solve? Sure. Yeah. And I know it's challenging for folks out there who might be listening to this. There's so many different names and terminology that exists out there, but this is how Forrester refers to the tools of sales engagement. Those are tools that help sellers manage their multi-channel touch points and cadence with customers and prospects. And it drives more efficiencies. There's automation associated with those tools that helps bring emails and other types of interactions automatically up to the CRM so that salespeople get out of the data entry game. And historically, you'll see um, companies like um, InsideSales.com or Outreach or SalesLoft play in that space. They're in that category. And historically, those types of tools have been focused on the inside seller, the remote sellers, we like to call them. And now we're seeing um, those tools start to extend across, you know, literally anyone who's interacting with a customer because you need to manage your interactions across an increasingly complex um, set of, uh, of channels and, and dynamics. And so we're starting to see field sellers take on these tools, customer success and who knows where, you know, even legal and other areas of the organization are interacting um, in a market-facing way, and they need tools to help them do that. So that's sales engagement. Sales enablement automation is um, the space that Mediafly plays in, as well as HighSpot and Seismic and Showpad and some others that your listeners might be familiar with. And so these tools or platforms help sellers efficiently, quickly access content and to be able to deliver it to their prospects and customers in a highly personalized and tailored way, whether that's in the moment of truth in the meeting, um, through dynamic uh, presentation or interactive tool delivery, um, or um, even by creating a customized microsite that has branding and other kinds of things that hearken to the buyer to make them feel more um, like the experience is more tailored to their needs. And what's really beautiful about these tools is that they also have digital workflows that bring marketing and sales together. So there's a way to, for sales to really um, tell marketing in, in a digital format what pieces of content are working, which aren't working, and um, to provide recommendations to workflow. And also there's consumption data, which informs marketing on what types of content and format sales is using and how buyers are actually interacting with that content. So they can start to understand what the ROI of a particular asset is or the whole strategy and do more of what works and less of what doesn't work. So yeah. I think, you know, this category is so crucial to um, enabling better experiences and efficiency for buyers, sellers, and marketers. I agree. And finally, sales readiness is in that mix too. Yeah. So if you think about sales enablement automation, primarily you're sharing as a seller these assets externally with buyers. Sales readiness is more about some of the internal assets. And different from sales training, sales readiness is more focused on helping the seller be 100% ready for their next interaction with a buyer. So imagine, you know, if I'm a seller and I have a very big meeting with a large group of C-level stakeholders, before I go to that pitch, maybe I'm in my car, I'm on my smartphone, and I want to see how the person I think is the best seller at my organization delivered this pitch can actually go watch a video on it. 
or I want to do a role play with my manager in advance, or maybe my company's no, rolling out a new product and I need to get certified on it. I can do all of this sort of anywhere, anyhow, any way I want, online, offline, and it gets sellers ready for that next interaction, whether it's digital, virtual, or in person in an analog way. And when you think about it, this is so crucial for a couple of reasons. One, because of the self-directed nature of today's buyers, particularly in the early phase and the fact that they're really focused on digital interactions, sellers are getting less and less at-bats. There's less, and less time in front of customers. So there's less opportunity to screw that up. And I think, you know, selling organizations understand that and are aggressively working to get these tools in place. And then finally, you know, the benefits of sales readiness, along with the other two that we mentioned, is you get, as a, as a sales or marketing leader, you get access to data. <laughs> and imagine if you're doing sales training, you know, in the past, someone comes in and a sales kickoff, and it's Challenger or it's uh, Sandler or whoever it is. You know, and then they do some reinforcement over the web uh, once a quarter, and maybe they come back mid-year. The retention levels on that stuff is, you know, less than 10%. And then the yeah, other thing is... curve, absolutely. Yeah, it's a free, and then the other thing is the only kind of data you have is completion, attendance. So with sales readiness tools, you can start to really get to the heart of pretty relevant data and link all of this stuff back to the pipeline and be able to make better business decisions. Absolutely. Capability, competence, and credibility are the three that you kind of get from that and the softer skills, whereas the sales enablement automation is giving you that content for the last mile. There's still softer yep. skills that need to be go on top of it. Absolutely. Well, so, also, if you, you know, you can have the greatest content in the world and if someone doesn't deliver it in a good way, yep. um, you know, you're going to, it's not going to move the opportunity forward. So there's a real correlation between, I think, external content and and internal content and making sure that you can present that external content in the best possible manner. So you mentioned CRM and, you know, there's been a lot of rollouts of CRM and those have tended to disappoint. Sales enablement and some of the early implementations of that, um, sales readiness, um, these technologies aren't always successful when they're deployed. What, what are some of the things that you're seeing and what would you suggest for an organization to kind of Get it right. Um, we see a lot of big RFPs, a lot of big bang programs that occur, you know, kind of like um, ERP implementations back in the day, you know, invest 60 million. And um, when you're done at the end of the day, it, it might not exactly work. Um, what are you seeing in terms of the way to make sure that sales enablement, sales readiness, sales engagement doesn't follow suit? Well, I think a lot of learnings can be taken away from this whole CRM headache. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, first of all, starting on a positive note, I think that it's really good that organizations now understand that it's actually critical to have these solutions and platforms in place if their sales organizations are going to compete successfully Absolutely. in a modern environment. I mean, that's just critical that folks understand this. Well understood, so they, right? Yeah. I think it's well understood. So, so then the next issue is why do why did large technology implementations, and even when it's simple, is you know serves a fast rollout? Why do they fail? Mostly, it's not because the technology doesn't do one thing or another. When these initiatives fail, in my view, they fail because of people and process, not because of technology limitations. Of course, there's you know some exceptions here and there. And going back to the whole CRM headache, 
part of the reason CRM failed is because, you know, it was never designed for sellers. And when a purchase got made of CRM, sellers were typically not involved early on in the evaluation. They weren't asked about how they might use the solution or to provide ideas. So, you know, one of the big things that companies can do is really include sales in the pre-sales process. Make sure you understand the use cases, what some of their pain points are, what their day-to-day workflow is like, and enlist and engage and educate them. Don't sort of carve them off and expect marketing's going to pay for this and then roll it out. That just doesn't work with salespeople's DNA. So I would say, you know, engage sales and look at all of these purchases with a sales lens versus, you know, what the benefit is to the organization. Because I think with CRM, the benefit to the organization is huge. The benefit to the salesperson has clearly, you know, how many decades later, we haven't really figured out if CRM actually provides any value to an individual salesperson. So there's some legacy baggage around technology being forced across the desktop of a salesperson. So I would say engage, enlist them, get them involved in the process and get them excited and, and you know, maybe start with a pilot so that you can have a group of folks who potentially will be advocates. Another thing I see go wrong with pilots is that organizations don't stack the deck don't just roll a pilot out to some indiscriminate group. Figure out who's the most innovative sales leader. What's the most innovative region? What's the you know, next person in sales leadership who wants to get promoted, who wants to have an impact or on the organization? And roll the pilot out with that group. Absolutely. Stack the deck for your favor. And you know, sometimes I don't think enough thought goes into how you want to roll out some of these, these pilots. And then I think the other thing that I've seen is that because the pace of technology progress is so fast right now that, you know, there are technology vendors out there where the functionality is absolutely comprehensive and robust. And quite frankly, some organizations may just not be ready for that. So don't go out and necessarily buy the Porsche if you don't need it. Start um, with something that's manageable where you can start to show some really big improvements and pick a vendor who has a vision for the future who could share thought leadership and hold your hand every step of the way as you move forward versus, you know, taking a big bite of the apple and, you know, maybe you can't digest it all. So those are a couple of things I might think about um, as I think about these types of technologies. Yeah, that's great advice. Now I know that there are companies that are reaping great rewards. We've had our fair share um, at Mediafly, you've done a comprehensive analysis of this and looked at economic impacts of sales enablement technology and tools. What, what did the, the research reveal? What were the top three economic impacts that you found? Yeah, so just for some of the listeners who might not be familiar with Forrester's total economic impact model, we have a model that is a product line within our business and we have consultants who have quantitative backgrounds, and then we have a tool that we create. So we have a very deep assessment where we really look at costs, benefits, risks, and future unforeseen opportunities. Mm-hmm. And we go out and we do quantitative and qualitative research, and I had the pleasure of partnering with Dean Davidson, who's one of our quantitative consultants. We worked together for several months And we looked at what the total economic impact was going to be for companies that 
invested in and successfully operationalized sales engagement, sales enablement automation, and sales readiness tools together as a trifecta. And as we started the research, what was really interesting, Tom, is, you know, I talked to a bunch of sales enablement practitioners, and they would say to me, Mary, we categorically know that these tools have helped our organization close more business, our sellers be more successful, ramp up times decrease. And then when I started going to ROI, no one could really put their finger on it. So I'm really happy that we were able to go and do the study. And what we found was absolutely phenomenal. Within 12 months, organizations can expect about a 20% lift in revenue across the board. From a rep productivity standpoint, you're going to see about an 18 to 20% lift in deals for reps. And in terms of new hires that come into your firm, <laughs> ramp times can be compressed anywhere from 20 to 50%. Wow. And then we went through a much more sophisticated model, which probably Dean is much better at talking about than I am, but we were able to look at what is the total economic impact three years down the road for companies. And we used a um, prototypical type of company that we came up with. And we found out that the uh, return on investment was about 666% over a three-year time period. So to me, you know, that's just an absolute no-brainer. Now, as we, were, as we were saying before, you know, it's great that now we have this data, so we have a tool that will help our clients go uh, foster and bring forth this internal discussion. But it is about operationalizing successfully, and so that's yep. where some of these other things around change management, bite-sized chunks, pilots, and starting with the right amount of functionality so that you don't get overwhelmed. Well, that needs to be a core focus to make sure all these things are successful. Exactly. Start easy and then make sure the people process and pilot are there to make I it successful. So. Yeah, absolutely. So. We've talked a lot about sales reps, direct sales reps, customer success internal, but I know a lot of um, listeners and, and organizations rely a lot on channel partners, which often seem like the stepchild of many sales enablement programs, the ugly yeah. stepchild. Talk just a little bit about that. Um, what are you seeing and um, why aren't yeah. we enabling channel partners to the same level? Well, I know channel partners tend to have that sort of that, that, that sense about them. But I would, I would submit that they're your most beautiful and smartest children that you have. When you think about 75% of B2B revenue comes through the indirect channels. Yeah. You all know from talking to my colleague, Jay McBain. So I don't know why, you know, sales enablement has been so focused on direct, but I see and our research shows that sales enablement over time is going to really increase its impact around uh, digital channels and also indirect channels. And Jay and I have talked a lot about this, but we see 2020 as the year of enablement for the indirect channel because those folks are sellers too. They're yes. not dealing with any kinds of different challenges that the direct seller deals with. And I would say the challenges that they have are even more intensified because they're not always repping just one product or service, mm -hmm. right? They have multiple categories. And, you know, if you're an OEM and you want to, raise the profile of your product, why not provide some of these tools that are going to enable your channel partner to be as successful as your direct rep? So I see, and I know Jay agrees with me, that um, we're going to see a lot of focus on the indirect channel as well as we move forward. I totally agree. And it's hard because you don't control those resources, and that's probably why it gets less emphasis. Um, 
you know, right. they're, not, they're not directly working for you, but uh, the ability to enable them, we've seen huge impacts. And uh, I remember a program I worked on uh, at Microsoft where we developed a suite of assessment tools and the channel partners, which is how Microsoft did a, uh, most of their business with the product lines we were working with through channel partners, they enabled um, the partners with these assessment tools and it, it facilitated them to go out and not have a product discussion, but to do a capability maturity assessment around each area of the prospect's business. And these interactive tools were the cornerstone of many of these best partner go-to-market programs. They would lead with take the challenge, you know, let us come in and do these assessments for you. Instead of just pitching you about the latest upgraded server or uh, virtualization software or management tool, instead right. let me look at your organization comprehensively and it elevated every partner within the eyes of the customers and was very successful. And well, 100 yeah. percent. And there's one other point, which is I think there's going to be more urgency from the partner seller themselves or those organizations, because if they don't get this right, Tom, what you just described, they're going to get disintermediated, whether mm -hmm. that's by e-commerce or marketplaces or the direct selling organization that the OEMs that they rep product from. So I think they they know that they need to take a different approach, but it is hard to make some of that change when you've gone about your business the same way for many years. Absolutely. So we've covered a ton of ground, Mary Shea, and it's been amazing. But if you had to distill it down to one thing, one piece of advice you'd leave the audience with, what, what would that be? Well, you know, since we're Forrester, I'm going to re-engineer the question. And I'm going to say I'm going to give okay. two pieces of advice <laughs> here to your listeners. One, and, and both are more on the personal professional side. So one is don't be afraid to take calculated risks in your career. And I've always found in the times when I've been able to do that, I've achieved the biggest reward. And it, it, it's thoughtful risk, but had I not taken that chance to go work at Forestry back in 1996, my life would have been very, very different. And yeah. um, I'm so thankful that I did because the opportunities that I've had over the course of these many years have been absolutely tremendous. So I would say take some calculated risk in your career because that's where you're going to see the highest upside. And then the other piece I would leave is since we're coming upon the holidays is make sure you make time for your family and friends and, and recharge and rest and regroup so that you can come back and face 2020 with renewed energy and enthusiasm. So that's what I've got for your listeners. Oh, Mary, very powerful. So thank you so much. How can folks reach out to you online? Yeah, well, it's, it's ironic because, as you know, it's very, even as a customer, it's very difficult to get to the Forrester Analyst sometimes. And you have sometimes. lots of layers that sort of funnel conversations and scheduling and things of that nature. But I'm pretty instantaneous online. So, you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Please link in with me. Send me a note or message. Direct message me if you have something that you'd like to respond to regarding this broadcast or anything else that I'm writing about. I'm on Twitter and um, also on Facebook, which I'm finding increasingly seems to uh, get business contacts there as well. But I would say Twitter or Twitter and LinkedIn, I'm extraordinarily active and I love uh, direct message and personal message if you need to get to me quickly. And Mary Shea will include those uh, links in the description for this podcast. I cannot thank you enough. Uh, is so informative always to talk to you and to uh, have a conversation. And I look forward to many, many more. Thank you, Mary Shea. Thank you, Tom. Thanks, everybody.